0: Dust off the bus conductor's custard, you stunning Donicus. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Thank you for the lovely feedback regarding last week's episode, where I had a chat with Sinead O'Connor. Sinead was fantastic crack. I'd love to have her back on the podcast again to talk about whatever, talk about anything. I loved hearing about her artistic process, her opinions on religion. It was, she's a fabulously interesting person. If you're a newer listener to this podcast, I suggest going back and listening to some earlier episodes and familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. And if you're a regular listener, if you're a droopy Susan or a sideways Kevin, then you know the crack, you're very welcome. I'm feeling a bit optimistic this week. Feeling slightly better. Because this time next week I will have visited a gym. The gyms are back open. On Monday the 7th of fucking June. And I just can't wait. I can't fucking wait. I can't believe. I think the last time I stepped foot in the gym must have been December. Before we went into that big long lockdown. And. I'm just looking forward to. Having a place to go. That's it. Having a place to go and a thing to do. Going to the gym. Lifting weights. And also. I've got an Achilles fucking heel injury that's not going away because I can't rest it because to rest it means not to exercise at all and when I get back to to the gym I can literally rest my Achilles I don't have to run I can get my cardio in many different ways that have no impact on my fucking heel so I can actually let my heel rest and I can build up all the muscles on my legs and my calves and the whole shebang ...using specialist equipment... ...so I'm unbelievably happy... ...about the gym coming back... ...and I'm looking forward to what this is going to do... ...to my overall fucking well-being... ...because it was tough going for a few months there... ...and... ...it's impacting my capacity to create... ...it's impacting my, my output... ...I'm supposed to be writing a book at the moment... ...which is... ...that's a lot of work as you can imagine... ...and currently... I'm kinda of just able to do this podcast to put all the work that, that goes into doing this podcast and to doing my Twitch stream, but I don't have the mental energy for writing a fucking book. And I think the ritual, the ritual and pattern of going to a place called a gym and doing exercises and there being other people there. I think the excitement of that will realign me creatively. And then I'll probably get vaccinated in, a, in about a month. I reckon like July is when people in their 30s are getting vaccinated, isn't it? I'm not 100% sure. So I've got a hot take for you this week. I'm going to do an art history podcast. Because I love doing art history podcasts. And I know, I know you enjoy them. And I had a love... I, I, so the hot take for me is my process is I'll decide what I'm doing a podcast about and I'll do a shit ton of research and I'll read and read and read into the topic and I usually go for academic journals and original sources um, I tend not to use Wikipedia now I don't find anything wrong with Wikipedia I really don't P- people say oh don't use Wikipedia Wikipedia is fucking grand like it's it's there's citations in Wikipedia, so it's not necessarily unreliable. The reason I don't use Wikipedia is it's no crack. It's no. It, the fun is in the research. The fun is in the deep, the deep dive into the research. And also, sometimes you'd listen to a podcast or see a video, and you can tell that they've used Wikipedia because some of their wording and language is similar to the the Wikipedia article, and that's no fun. And I won't get the hot take. If I'm using Wikipedia, I'll only get the hot take if I'm deep in the research. And the hot take for me, and I'm just going to describe what a hot take is because I'm aware that I have new listeners this week because of Sinead O'Connor last week. A hot take for me is the story. Like this podcast is going to be about painting from the 1500s, a painter from the 1500s. And... There's a way to do that that's really fucking boring. You know, there's a way to talk about painting from the 1500s and make it really fucking boring and to not pay any respect to the subject matter and do it in a very dull, academic way and engage nobody. And unfortunately, that's often the case. You know, that's often the case about when it comes to things like art history or history in general quite a lot of the stuff out there it's, it's not engaging and it's preaching to the choir and it's not doing anything to make a subject matter fucking exciting to somebody who's new to it and who's uninitiated so when I do a hot take what I'm doing is I'm taking the mechanics of fiction and applying it to a historical account to tell you the most interesting version of that story so that it's fun and fucking entertaining and really enjoyable for me because that's how I learn shit to be honest if I'm reading something when I get excited if I'm reading something factual and my brain gets excited and starts making creative connections with other things, that's when I consolidate something to my memory and understand it better, and I'm going to be as factually accurate as I can I'll never deliberately mislead but I do all the research myself so I might get a little detail wrong here and there I try my best not to but it does happen and that's a consequence of listening to a small independent podcast that's made by one person who's very passionate about what they're doing but there's going to be a little bit of error it's like if you go to a fucking microbrewery and they make small batch craft beer in the fucking brewery and it's yummy and lovely and unique but there's floaty bits in it me getting the odd fact wrong is the floaty bits you cunts so this week's hot take is about hell in particular our contemporary western vision of hell, the images that come to your mind when I mention hell I, I think I can make a plausible robust argument that our contemporary vision of hell is actually based on Cork in Ireland and that's what this week's podcast is going to be about. And I'm going to do it via the 16th century painter, Hieronymus Bosch. So I've been wanting to do a podcast on the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch for for some time. <clears throat> I've been looking into him for a couple of months. And I never got to do it because there's very little information about himself, about Hieronymus Bosch. He was a Dutch painter, oil painter, painted in the late 15th century, early 16th century. But he'd be... I think he'd be the type of painter that... Most people who aren't into painting... If you saw Hieronymus Bosch painting, you'd be like, "Okay, I've seen that before. Because it's very, very unique for the time. Bosch was famous for painting visions of heaven and hell. Really fucking... Hieronymus Bosch is sometimes called a proto-surrealist painting painter. In that the surrealist movement of the 20th century, people like Salvador Dali... Now, Salvador Dali is a very famous painter. Most people would know a Salvador Dali painting if they saw it. Dali was a surrealist. He was inspired by the work of Sigmund Freud and he wanted to paint the fantastical... Landscapes of the unconscious mind. Salvador Dali was painting dreams essentially. So his paintings were surreal. They weren't rooted in, in reality, they were imaginative paintings. And they were metaphorical. Because, like I said, Dali has taken influence from fucking Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, and he's interested in the paranoid symbolism of the human mind. What crazy things do we see in our dreams that are metaphors for feelings or fears in real life and how can I paint these things, how can I make them visual? That was Dali's crack. Now, Hieronymus Bosch, 400 years previously, previous to Dali, his paintings look as surreal, but he's not painting metaphor. Hieronymus Bosch would have literally believed, I'm painting fucking hell and I'm painting heaven and these things are real and they're not of this world but this isn't metaphor this is the other this is the other world his paintings were a visual warning to whoever saw them of i'm going to paint what is literally there for you after you die depending on whether you're a good person or a bad person how could i best describe hieronymus bosch his paintings are like remember where's wally you know where's wally or where's waldo if you're American. He would paint like a giant Where's Wally painting. Except it's people being tortured in hell. He made horror paintings. And I can't imagine what these must have been like. To someone in the 15th or 16th century. Because the printing press is only a recent enough thing. Whatever paintings you did see. They were often biblical paintings that would portray Christ. Christ or Mary they weren't very surreal you'd get the odd angel maybe but Hieronymus Bosch was trying to paint what demons look like he was trying to paint the torture and, and fantastic landscape of hell and purgatory and heaven and it would have been like a Marvel movie at the time or a Michael Bay film you don't there's not a lot of subtlety in a Hieronymus Bosch painting. They're very crowded. There's hundreds and hundreds of figures. And you can zoom in at any point in a painting. And it go into a small little detail and you see something fucking crazy. Like a person being tortured because there's a flute being shoved up their arse. Or a bird with human legs eating a man whole. And the difference between Hieronymus Bosch's paintings and we'll say the surrealists 500 years later, is I don't think Hieronymus Bosch was trying to be surreal. Bosch was a a Christian fundamentalist. He would have been a hardcore Christian fundamentalist a couple of years before the Protestant Reformation. And Bosch was a member of a group called the Highly Respected Brotherhood of Our Lady, which were like an elite organisation of Christians. So they took their Christianity very seriously. And also, this highly respected, uh, respected Brotherhood of Our Lady, they were involved in what was known as the, the collection of indulgences. And the collection of indulgences was when the Catholic Church, basically, they, they went to, to rich people and said to rich people, um, if you just pay us money, that can actually absolve your sins and you can get a place in heaven. So you can buy your place in heaven if you're rich enough. And Bosch would have been involved in this. That's one of the reasons that Protestantism came about. Because when Martin Luther did his fucking theses on the wall, he was like, this shit's wrong. You can't buy your way into heaven. What the fuck is that about? But it's important, I think, when we're looking at the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch, it's important to, to look at the fact that he was also involved in this elite Christian organization that were selling indulgences to rich people. And here's why. So Bosch's patron would have been Henry III of Nassau. Now Nassau, I think, I think Nassau was like a kingdom that incorporated the Netherlands and Germany. It doesn't exist anymore. But his patron was a fucking king. And Bosch would have been very high up in the court. So what Bosch is doing is painting terrifying, detailed visions of hell. And the person who would have owned one of Hieronymus Bosch's paintings would have been this king, Henry III, right? So imagine, imagine a scene like this. Henry III, he's the fucking king, incredibly wealthy. He holds a dinner. And at the dinner are a load of other incredibly wealthy people. So they're fallible human beings. They're Christians, but they're fallible human beings. So there might be some boldness going on at these dinners. There might be sex workers there. They might be drinking too much. They might be dancing. They might be engaged in sinful activities. So the dinner finishes and then Henry brings his guests into a room and Henry says, Now I've got this painting inside here, lads, that Hieronymus Bosch is after doing for me. It's called The Garden of Earthly Delights. Now how this painting works is it's it's not like a traditional painting. It's what's called a triptych which means it's three panels. Think of it less like a painting and imagine it like a wardrobe. So the guests walk into this room and you're presented with what looks a bit like a wardrobe. On the front of this is the first image you see. And this is called the Garden of Earthly Delights if you want to check it out. The first image you see is a kind of a grey image of the earth as it's just created. And then you open the painting up like a wardrobe, and there you have three panels. On the left panel, you see the Garden of Eden, okay? It's Adam and Eve. God is there, and Adam and Eve are there, and it's a beautiful garden. It's very colourful and nice, and you have the Fountain of Life in the background. Everything on the left panel is perfect and pure and nice, and like I said, it's, it's like Where's Wally? It's, you've got to get up right close and look at all the small little details. And this is what would have been happening with the rich people in the room. They'd have been looking at that left panel going, Oh wow, there's Adam, there's Eve. Oh, is that a little cat? Wow, what's that in the background? Oh, that animal's called a giraffe. You've never seen one of them. They're in Africa. Oh my God, wow. Then you've got the centre panel, which is the biggest panel. Now again, this looks like the Garden of Eden. It's very bright, it's very friendly. And you've just got hundreds and hundreds of naked figures. And these people are in the Garden of Eden. They're in the Garden of Earthly Delights. Now, for the rich guests, this probably would have been the most entertaining panel from a conversational point of view. Like each panel, it takes the classic story structure. setup, conflict, resolution. So the setup on the left is, there's the fucking, there's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know that. Very simple. Now you've got the middle. Here's the conflict. So this looks like the Garden of Eden. It's crowded with figures, naked figures and animals and all sorts. And if you get, get in real close to see what's going on... And then you look real close and you see a bunch of people fucking each other. There's like... There's a lot of sexual stuff going on. There's... There's lads with their arses pointed at other lads. There's... There's, there's gay stuff going on. There's... Loads of animals. There's people eating loads of fruit off bushes... And it kind of looks like fun. But then they start talking about us. And the king or Bosch himself or a fucking bishop who's present is going, yeah, these people are engaging in sin. These people are actually, they're destroying the, the Garden of Eden here. You see them they're all fornicating and they're all adultering and they're eating too much food and those people are gambling. Now you have this big conversation going on and you have the conflict of sin. And this is like a Marvel film to the rich guests. Because they don't get this type of visual stimulation. They're never going to see something as fantastical as this in their life in the 1500s. So now they're conversing about these things. But then at some point, someone probably says, but this is the shit that ye get up to. Like you're all wealthy. ye, ye have orgies in your fucking mansions, don't ye? And ye eat too much food and ye gamble. Now they're talking about fucking sin. Then you move on to the other panel on the right. You pull it back and you reveal it. And the panel on the right is the resolution. And that's hell. So now you present your rich, wealthy guests... With fucking... This is what happens. And it would have been utterly terrifying. This, this is the panel that represents the horror. You've got people with musical instruments... Shoved up their fucking arses. You've people with people getting their throats cut. You've got burning fires... You have everyone who was in the middle panel now being brutally tortured in graphic detail for all eternity. And you have lots and lots of grotesque demons. You've got very ugly, frightening demons that are half human, half animal, which would have blown the minds of a person from the 1500s who doesn't have TV and who truly believes that this is a, an accurate, figurative representation of hell. So now your guests are starting to get pretty fucking scared because this is the 1500s and it's not surrealism. This isn't a metaphor. This is a vision handed down from fucking God to represent this is what hell is like and this is what's going to happen to you if you don't repent from sin. And everyone is there going, fuck it, but I've done all this shit. How do I repent? And, you know, like I said, they're fallible human beings. So a lot of them are going to be saying, I've too much money. I'm not gonna stop fucking having banquets and orgies. I love this shit. I don't wanna fucking stop doing this. I don't wanna repent now. Well, it just so happens that I'm King Henry III and the painter Hieronymus Bosch, who's involved in this fucking brotherhood organization. It just so happens that if you pay us money, we can give that to the church. And then your sins are wiped clean. You can get into heaven. Not a bother. You can give us money. And you don't have to worry about that third panel. You can live in paradise. And that's how I view Hieronymus Bosch's paintings. That's what they were. And the modern equivalent of a Hieronymus Bosch painting, the modern equivalent is, there's these conferences that are happening right now in the world for the super, super rich, for the elite. And they're conferences that sell people compounds in New Zealand. So... There's this huge market at the moment for very, very rich people, billionaires, to move to New Zealand and to buy compounds and shelters in the event of climate change, societal collapse, whatever. Like, they'd be milking it now with coronavirus. They'd be using coronavirus to scare the shit out of them. Like, even Dubai. Look at Dubai. Dubai just went, coronavirus? No, we're not going to do coronavirus. Super rich people, come over here. We'll make sure all the workers get it, but you won't get it. You come to Dubai, you don't have to do any quarantine or any shit like that. But these conferences now are set in land in New Zealand because New Zealand is seen as the, the safest place in the event of rising seas and all this. But they have these huge conferences with the wealthiest people in the world. And they basically scare the living fuck out of them for two hours about everything horrendous that may happen. And then at the end of it, they say, And here's a compound for 100 million in New Zealand where you can avoid all of this. You can bring your family and you can live in this bunker with all the food forever and you'll be fine. And that's that's the modern equivalent of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. You're essentially using a type of propaganda to scare the living fuck out of people who have everything and to get money out of them. And I'm not saying that like climate change isn't a threat and all of this. But what I am saying is that if you look look up these online conferences that they have for very rich people they're trying to scare the fuck out of them because they're selling them a solution it's identical that's what Hieronymus Bosch's paintings were that was their, their purpose at the time it was church propaganda to, to sell indulgences now that was going to be my hot take on Bosch that was going to be my hot take that it was a way to frighten rich people into paying up money and how this is similar to what's being done right now with climate change. And. Then I got looking into it more. And I found it an even fucking hotter take. Which I'm far more interested in. So. It's worth noting that. Hell isn't really mentioned much in the actual fucking bible. Okay. It's certainly not described in much detail. Hell in the bible I think it's mentioned only like 40 times and it's generally described as a lonely place where God isn't present. Hell in the Bible is more it's the absence of God's love and hell as this terrible fiery place of torture, that's a more modern invention. Our visual idea of hell, even today, our visual idea of fire and volcanoes and torture and pain visually you you can kind of lay that at the feet of Hieronymus Bosch Hieronymus Bosch and his paintings he laid the foundations for what we visually see hell as right he can totally have credit for that and you'd be kind of thinking where did Hieronymus Bosch get his ideas for where hell is where did that come from And a lot of people would place that as, there's an Italian poet called Dante and he wrote a poem called The Divine Comedy, the first part of which is called Inferno, Dante's Inferno. And Dante describes a a very detailed vision of hell where people are, with different areas, where people are tortured in specific ways that relate to the sins that they committed. And that's very present in The paintings of Hieronymus Bosch. This group of people are being tortured in this way because they were adulterers or that group of people are being tortured in that way over there because they were gamblers. And then this person's being tortured like that because they were a glutton. And Dante has this present in his poem, The Divine Comedy. But I went looking into it fucking more and it didn't come from Dante. Dante. Our modern vision of hell comes from Cork in the 12th century. And that's what I want to speak about this week. But Before I do that, so I have uninterrupted flow, I think it's time for a little ocarina pause. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? That was the Ocarina pause, you would have heard a digitally inserted advert that ACAST would have put in there. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the Blind Boy Podcast. This podcast is it's my full-time job and it's how I earn a living. And I love doing it. I love doing this podcast. But if you if you love listening to this podcast and you're listening to it quite a bit, And it's providing you with entertainment or solace or whatever the fuck. So I'm asking you to consider paying me for the work that I'm doing and become a patron of this podcast. And what I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. Would you buy me a pint in real life if you met me in a bar? And then you get four podcasts a month out of that. And I get paid for the work that I'm putting into it because it is quite a bit of work to do. To do the research that goes into it, it's very rewarding work, but it's, it's work. So I'd like you to consider that, please. If you can't afford that, though, if you don't have that, if you don't have that money, then that's absolutely fine. You don't have to. Um, what I always say is, if you can afford to pay me for this work, then you're paying for the person who can't afford it to listen. So everybody gets the exact same podcast and I earn a living. And that's just the perfect model. It's based on kindness and soundness. And what more could you want? It also keeps the podcast independent. Um, Advertisers can't tell me what to do. Sometimes advertisers, if they're investing in a podcast, they're like, well, if we're advertising on this podcast, can you make it a bit more mainstream so that you get more listeners? Or can you not talk about that political thing you talk about? Can you be a bit more neutral on those issues? Because we don't want to turn people off. And when you start relying very heavily on advertisers, then it quickly becomes impossible to make the podcast you want to make. It's that simple. And the Patreon means that that doesn't have to fucking happen. And when I do have an advertiser on this podcast, it's 100% on my terms and they can fuck off. They try and change it because this is hosted by Acast. So I am obligated to have a certain amount of advertising on it. But I get to say yes and no. So whatever reason it is that you're coming to this podcast, whatever it is you like about this podcast that has you listening to it, the Patreon means that I get to keep that specific thing going and not change it or make it more mainstream. Also a great way to help not just my podcast, but any independent podcast that you're enjoying. Speak about it, share it on social media, leave a review on whatever podcast app you're using. These things are all really helpful. ...catch me on Twitch once a week... ...twitch.tv forward slash The Blind Podcast... ...where I'm... ...making an ongoing... ...musical to the events of a video game... ...that's good crack... ...so Hieronymus Bosch... ...Hieronymus Bosch's paintings... ...and Cork in Ireland... ...and how are they connected... ...so I fucking love... ...finding out... ...about the Irish cultural footprint... ...about the sheer scale of influence... ...that Irish culture has had on the world... That we're not fully aware of. And this one for me was just... It was shocking and it was fantastic to learn about. We can nearly take credit for the modern vision of what hell is. So there's a manuscript that was written in Ireland in the 12th century. It's a religious manuscript called the Visio Dali. Visio as in... I think that's Latin. Visio like vision. And Dali then is a Gaelic name, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So, this this vision was written by a monk called Brother Marcus. He was an Irish monk called Brother Marcus, who was based in Scotland, I believe. And he was the first person to write this vision down in 1149. So there was this knight from Cork, so he probably would have been a Norman knight, now whether he was real or not I don't know but he was a knight from Cork who he, he basically claimed that he died and was and visited fucking heaven and hell like like an alien abduction story or an ayahuasca trip this knight from Cork who met brother Marcus was like I fucking died for 3 days and I went to fucking hell All right, I was there And he told Brother Marcus this story and Brother Marcus wrote it down and that became the Vizio Tnugdalli. So the story is is that the knight Tnugdallis he was a prick. He lived in Cork and he was a bollocks. He was riding everything around him. He was gambling. He was stealing. He was engaging in every single sin that was available to him. And then one day he ends up... ...eating dinner in someone's house... ...and he's acting the bollocks in the house... ...and after he takes a few bites... ...he collapses... ...and... ...they don't know what it is but... ...he's basically like... ...I'm dying, I'm dead... ...so they get to knock Dallas's body... ...and they lay it out on a slab... ...because they're like he's dead... ...but they notice that the left side of his body... ...is still a tiny bit warm... ...so they're like well if he was fucking dead he'd be fully cold... So let's not bury him yet. Just leave him there. So for three days and three nights, Tnogdalis was in a coma, I suppose. And it's when this happened, he claimed that his soul went to fucking hell. And that's what the vision of Tnogdali is about. And this is the first time that we see a graphic, vivid description of hell as not just a a place where you're absent from God but a very terrifying arena of torture so the first thing that happens is that Dallas finds himself in the biblical version of hell that empty, empty lonely place where God isn't present that's the first place he lands in and it's dark and then all of a sudden he's overcome with this mad feeling of dread and fear and running towards him are these massive wild wolves with their mouths open and their eyes are full of fire and they're gnashing at him and biting at his flesh. Now I'd imagine that's a reference to, like in ancient Greek mythology, in the underworld, which is like the Greek version of hell, there's a dog called Cerberus that has three heads guards the gates of the other world in Greek mythology so I'll imagine it's it's a reference to that but he's down there anyway and there's these and he he describes their smell the smell is unlike anything any person has ever smelled these real stinking smelly dogs biting at his feet and ripping his flesh off but just before he's about to die in hell this angel appears and the angel is like I'm gonna guide you guide you through hell I'm going to guide you through hell and I'm going to show you all the sins that you did and I'm going to show you what awaits you. You're not dead. You're very lucky, Tug Dallas. I'm going to guide you through this now and I'm going to talk you through it. And When you're beside me, you're going to be protected by the love of God. But you're going to have to fucking... You're going to deal with some real shit now over the next three fucking days. So this is where the angel guides him through different parts of hell where... Different souls are tortured in unique ways according to the sins that they committed in real life. And this is the first time we really start to see this. So the angel takes him into this dark tunnel with no light. And it says the ground was an expanse of burning coals over the hot coals was laid iron that was glowing red from the heat and the bars of metal rose to the height of a man and the flames passed through them as designed to inflict severe pain and then the angel said this is where people go when they've, if they've been murderers so the people who've murdered in life their souls are in this place forever basically being poked by red hot pokers and with r- roaring hot iron going in and out of their bodies for all of eternity in continual agony also as well there's specific descriptions of demons that have the classic tongues and forks When you think of hell, the vision of hell, and you imagine these little red devils that have uh, three-pronged forks, this occurs in the vision of of, uh, Tung Dali. They're on this mountain, and one half of the mountain is snow, and the other half is fire. And the demons catch people, and they, they skewer them on their skewers, and they dip them between fire and snow two extremes, forever. Then the angel takes him now into a new place. And there's this giant fucking boar. Like this absolutely massive boar with these big metal tusks. And every time the boar opens its mouth, loads of devils fly around its mouth. And the angel explains that this is the punishment for men who are covetous. For people who are really greedy, who are never full. That they always want more. They're always looking at what someone else has. Either it be someone else's fucking wife or someone else's possessions or whatever. They just keep coveting over and over. So the punishment for these people is this huge giant boar has an insatiable appetite and will just eat you forever. Continually devouring you and shitting you out and devouring you and shitting you out. And one of the most amazing things about this giant boar is... He has two tusks and hanging off either tu- t- two tusks are Fergus MacRae and Conal Carnock and these are two characters from the Ulster cycle of Irish mythology um, Fergus MacRae, he's in the Tawn the Tawn is an epic Irish uh, poem and I think Fergus MacRae I think he ended up being one of Queen Maeve's boyfriends or something like that But they're hanging off the tusk of this giant boar in hell. And I think the reason they put that there is... It was Irish Christianity trying to demonise previous pagan mythology. To show that these characters who you think are heroes from the tawn... They're actually down in hell hanging off a boar's tusks. So now the angel disappears all of a sudden. And Tung is getting eaten by the fucking boar. And it says the fiend came quickly and bound him up and cast him into the beast's mouth... He was beaten by evil spirits, his bones were gnawed at by hungry lions, and his vital organs were pulled out by dragons. Venomous snakes consumed his limbs. Fire burned him, then ice froze him. His tears stung his cheeks like fire. And then he was released, and the angel was beside him, and the angel said, I rescued you with the love of God. So a theme is margin where basically the angel is dragging him through each of these different types of hell he's experiencing each torturous pain and then suddenly being rescued and being reminded it doesn't have to be this way you can repent with the love of God so then he takes him on to a new bit and it's just this giant pit of fire like lava with these fish inside in the lava that are jumping up ready to bite and all across the lava is this tiny, tiny fucking bridge that's the width of a palm and then the angel says to Tung Dallas this is what happens to thieves. So if you were thieving in your your mortal life, what you had to do in this part of hell is for all of eternity. You have to carry everything you ever stole on your back and try and walk across this tiny bridge that's the width of a palm and not fall in. So the angel says to Tung Dallas, You were robbing cows. That's what you used to do. You used to rob people's cows. And Tong Dallas is like, ah, it was only one. And like, so, well, fuck that. So Tong Dallas has to lead a wild cow across this tiny bridge, the width of a palm, while fiery fish jump up into the air and try and fucking eat his legs. And that's the punishment for thievery. So then the angel brings him into a new gaff, which is this giant building where there's nothing but butchers. Butchers standing around the place with giant knives and cleavers, and the angel says that this is this is the punishment for people who are brutal. So Tong Dallas gets chopped into loads of little pieces by all these butchers and hacked to bits, and then his body his body joins back together again, and he's basically being butchered for all of eternity. So then they move on to a, another place. You're kind of getting the point, and th- this is, you know, this is something you get with Irish mythology. It's very It's repetitive and kind of list-based. But they move on to a new place now. And this bit I find fascinating because this is... ...the modern description of of the devil. So it says... "...soon they came upon a hideous creature that filled filled, uh, Tungdal with terror. It seemed more evil and dangerous than anything he'd seen before... ...with two enormous black wings... ...and with claws of iron and steel protruding from its feet. Its neck was long and slender." It held a huge head with two burning red eyes set wide apart and it spat fire in, an indi- a- a- in a seemingly indistinguishable stream and its nose was tipped with iron. And that's the devil. And basically what this area is, it's the punishment for clergymen and priests who don't obey the rules of the church, that they're forever eaten by the devil and shot out. So it goes on like this continual fire and torture and terrifying creatures and specific torture for specific crimes or specific sins then the angel takes him to purgatory which is a bit boring it's people there for ages and there's wind and rain and they're not particularly happy but they're not necessarily being tortured and then finally the angel takes him to heaven where everything is beautiful and blue and serene and there's plenty of food and the water is clear and it's a beautiful garden and the story ends with Togdallis being in heaven with the angel going fuck it this this gaff is nice I like this place and then he sees two men and he starts to get pissed off because he recognises the two men in heaven and he goes to the angel the fuck is this what's going on here I know those fellas that fella there is called Conkobar McDermott O'Brien he was the king of North Munster and that fella there is called Dunnock McCarthy, he was the king of South Munster and the two of them were tyrants they did nothing but wage war on each other, they've, they've murdered hundreds of people the fuck are the two of them doing here in heaven they're pricks and then the angel says to him they are pricks they're murderous pricks but they repented before they died. Even though those men killed all those people and committed all these sins before they died, they repented and they accepted God's love and that's why they're here in the kingdom of heaven. So it kind of goes on like that and Tung Dallas, you know, he meets all these these mythical Irish figures and kings and all of this while in heaven and then eventually the angel explains Christianity to him and he accepts the he, he 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 has communion he accepts the eucharist and then he's returned to his body and he's a changed man and he lives his life virtu- virtuously from then on and that story the vision of Togdal or togdali it it later became known as an ashling ashling means vision in irish and visionary poems or visionary tales of a character having a vision of another world is a a tradition in Irish storytelling. And I think it wasn't until the 17th or 18th century that they started to call it an ashling. But there would have been many stories like that. But what makes that special is that was written down in 1149 which was about five years before the Norman invasion of Ireland. So the Normans were basically the Brits. So in 1155 the Pope was English the only ever English Pope Pope Adrian IV and Pope Adrian basically granted permission to Strongbow the Normans to come over and take over Ireland and the reason that they gave was they're Christian in Ireland but they're not really Christian they have their own thing going on where it's Christianity mixed with kind of pagan Irish mythology and we don't like that so he wanted to introduce what was called the Gregorian reforms, which was Britain gets to take over Ireland so that you can make Irish Christianity more in line with Rome. And that story, that Visio Tugnalli, it's basically that, it's it's reject your mythology, reject the past of Ireland and repent and become proper Christians. That's what that is. But that vision became the equivalent of a bestseller in all of Europe. Now, the printing press wasn't a thing, but it was so successful as a vision of hell, as this terrifying vision of hell, that it got rewritten 170 times in Europe, which would have been blockbuster film equivalent. So it was all over Europe. It was one of the most popular Visions of hell that had ever been written about. And Dante's Inferno... ...guarantee you Dante's Inferno took inspiration... ...which was a hundred years later... ...would have taken inspiration from that Irish epic... ...visionary poem... ...which describes... ...different types of torture... ...for different types of sins... ...in hell. And that was written about Cork. Like the people at the time would have genuinely believed... ...that this knight from Cork... ...he actually died and actually visited hell... ...and this is his real description of hell... ...and that's why it would have been so powerful... ...but... ...he's not, he's a human being... ...whoever the fuck this knight was... ...was living in Cork... ...and the experiences of his vision... ...are going to be informed by whatever the fuck happened to him in Cork... ...now how does Hieronymus Bosch tie into this? Well... ...this manuscript... Was eventually. Made into an illuminated manuscript. In. Was it in France? I think it was in France. But it got made into an illuminated manuscript. Called the Getty Tondel. And an illuminated manuscript meant that there was. Images, pictures. So in 1475. Someone illustrated this story. And this was the biggest influence. On Hieronymus Bosch. Hieronymus Bosch had a copy of this book. And he was getting all his visions of the torture of hell and the visual representations from this book called the Getty Tundle which was a visual representation of that 12th century Irish story. So our modern vision of hell as visually represented by the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch is, is based upon Cork. There's a story about hell from a person living in Cork, and whatever it is about the fucking wild boars, the dogs, the butchers chopping them up, the king, of, the the king a monster. This is all Cork imagery. The fucking little devils with pitchforks poking people in the arse. It comes from Irish mythology. It's about Cork. So when Hieronymus Bosch was painting. his his fantastical visions of hell with all the little details like it it was entirely fantastical in that he, he wasn't if he was painting a tree he wasn't actually painting a tree what he would do is he would have a library and he would collect as many images as possible and his two main sources were this book which was the visual translation of this Irish myth of hell and the other books he used were what were known as bestiaries so Hieronymus Bosch would have been painting like America was uh, quote unquote discovered in 1492 so Bosch would have been painting around the time of what was called the age of discovery so you know sailors were moving into Africa over to South America so the two big influences in Bosch's paintings it's Cork and then he used to also have these books bestiaries which were someone might head to Africa and they'd draw a lion or they'd draw a giraffe or they'd draw a pineapple and that's what you see also in Bosch's paintings these exotic creatures and exotic fruits I don't know why he was doing that because there's giraffes Elephants, tigers, lions, all these things in his paintings. Maybe these were there because of who the audience was. The audience is these really rich people who might have the capital to one day visit these places. What you also see in Hieronymus Bosch's paintings, when he represents hell and sin, is you see the roots of racism. There are black people present in some of his paintings, and because he was such a hardcore orthodox Christian in the context of his paintings what black people meant was Moors they were Islamic so there's a few references to Islam and there's also the Turkish flag in certain parts of some of his paintings too as a way to communicate that Islam is bad that they're heretics and You can look at some of his paintings and he's he's presenting interracial sex as a sin. Also, musical instruments feature quite heavily in his vision of hell. Guitars, lutes, hardy-gardies, these are seen as sinful things that only occur in hell because to dance and to listen to music and to deviate from anything but Christian music was seen as sinful. So that's this week's hot take I think I've made a plausible, a really plausible and strong argument there as to why our contemporary vision of hell may have come from fucking Cork. It genuinely may have come from Cork. And I think that's fucking hilarious. And also just another utterly fantastic thing about Irish culture. And, and it's funny because Our vision of hell is just so ridiculously paranoid. It's so fucking over the top. Like, one of my favourite things about Irish mythology is hyperbole. Like, you'd be reading something about Cú Chulainn and they'll talk about how strong Cú Chulainn is and they'll say that, like, he was able to pick up a a lot of stones from the ground and throw it at a flock of swans and take down 20 of them at once. And there's this sense of utterly ridiculous exaggerations. Like, all Irish mythology reads like the worst liar you've ever met. Like, Irish mythology is like, it's, it's it starts off really interesting and you're engaged and then something batshit ridiculous happens and you can't take it seriously anymore. Like, the, the, the fucking, the story of the salmon of knowledge. Unbelievable story. There's this salmon and it contains all the knowledge in the world. And if you catch it and you eat it, you will gain all the knowledge in the world. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and his name is Fintan and he eats acorns. (laughs) And that's it, I'm done. It's like, why'd you have to throw that bit in? It was fucking brilliant. Fantastic, mythical salmon. And then you tell me his name is Fintan and he eats fucking acorns. And we brought that same paranoid over the top bullshit energy to the vision of fucking hell it's like oh Rory you were in hell you were I was yeah what was it like there was a boar a giant boar with two tusks uh, with with two lads hanging off each tusk oh yeah and what did he do he eats you forever and shits you out loads alright anything else yeah there's this there's this fucking room and there's a lot of butchers in it And what do they do? They keep chopping you up and you you grow back. And then they keep chopping you up and you grow back. Class. Like, no one else is going to be that fucking ridiculous. So we, we did that to hell. So fair play to us. And then Hieronymus Bosch. Fuck it, man. I can blame Cork on Protestantism. I can blame Cork on Protestantism. Hieronymus Bosch copied the specific Cork ultra paranoid vision of hell this was used to sell indulgences to rich people on the continent to basically go man, fucking hell there's going to be a boar that's going to eat you and shit you out a million times fuck, I wouldn't like that yeah, you better pay me money pay the church some money and then you won't have to live through that and then Martin Luther was like because he's a German this is fucking ridiculous this is ridiculous you're telling rich people that they're going to go somewhere where there's butchers that will chop them up forever and they keep growing back and and if they give you money they don't have to do it this is fucking ridiculous 95 theses is to the wall Protestantism is invented Protestantism got invented because of a paranoid man from Cork in the 12th century there's my fucking hot take there you go alright dog bless I'll talk to you next week I don't know what about. Hold up.